Welcome to EU The Jury. I'm Robin Lustig, and with me are 10 men and women who hope to be able to make up their minds about how to vote in the EU referendum on June the 23rd. They're going to hear from two experts, question them closely, and then discuss among themselves what they've learnt. And you'll be able to eavesdrop on their deliberations. They introduced themselves at the start of our discussion about the economy. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, perhaps it would be a good idea to do so now before you listen to this one. I should point out that our jurors are not meant to be a scientifically representative sample of the UK electorate, although we have chosen them more or less at random. Well, this discussion is about the EU and immigration. What effect is our vote in the referendum likely to have on the number of immigrants who enter the UK in the future? And our first speaker is Marley Morris from the think tank, the Institute for Public Policy Research. Marley Morris. Good morning, everyone. Um, I just wanted to start by talking a little bit about what free movement is, where it comes from, why it exists, and what it means for the UK. So the free movement is the principle by which any citizen of any EU member state can move to another member state, can live there, can work there, um, and has to be treated uh, equally to uh, the members of that host state. It was first introduced in the Treaty of Rome back in 1957, and it was part of uh, what was then known as the four freedoms of the, of the single market, the freedom of movement of uh, goods, uh, capital, services, and labor. So it was a fundamental aspect of the, the principles of the EU, the idea that you can uh, move around uh, goods and people um, freely uh, within the EU member states, because they thought that by opening up uh, markets that would um, be able to boost the economies of all the different countries. So, for instance, workers who, who would be able to move to uh, where they wanted in the EU um, in order to uh, enhance their job prospects um, in order to fill uh, skills gaps and so on. So that was the idea behind um, behind freedom of movement. Now, EU migration wasn't really a big issue for the for the UK until relatively recently. Uh, in the sort of 90s and, and 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 earlier, net EU migration was very low, virtually zero, and in some cases even negative. Right? There are more people from the UK living, going to other EU countries and there were EU, EU migrants coming to the UK. But that all changed really in 2004 with the um, accession of the Central and Eastern European member states, um, their, their A10 accession, or in particular their A8 accession, the eight countries from Central and Eastern Europe that joined, such as Poland, Lithuania, Hungary and so on. Um, and since then, EU migration flows have risen dramatically. And now we have a sort of approximately EU migration flows into the UK of around 250,000 uh, per year. That's sort of roughly the same, maybe a bit lower than, uh, than non-EU migration, so migration from other countries outside of the EU. Um, and the UK has the second highest flows uh, from EU countries in Europe. The first, uh, the country the most uh, number of people coming from other EU member states is Germany. 
Now, the, the countries that are the biggest stocks of EU migrants in the UK are roughly Poland, Ireland. Recent flows in particular have come from both the A8 countries, so countries like Poland and Hungary in particular. Uh, the more recent member states uh, that have joined in 2007, Romania and Bulgaria, particularly Romania, because that's a bigger country. Um, and also some of the older member states in Southern Europe, in particular Spain, Italy and Portugal. And that's that's probably because of higher unemployment rates in those countries after the Eurozone crisis. So what are some of the, the potential pros of free movement? Well, um, they, workers have filled some of the skills gaps in the UK economy. Um, they've supported uh, sectors that are reliant on low-skilled labour, in particular in hospitality, construction, food processing, uh, agriculture. I mean, EU migrants tend to have higher employment rates than uh, than UK nationals. So, particular the the countries from the new member states, mainly from Central Eastern Europe, have uh, employment rates of of eighty three percent compared to around seventy four percent for for UK nationals. So, they tend to have have higher employment rates. Tend to have a lower. Uh, uh, take of out-of-work benefits, tend to be young and healthy, and tend to have a fiscal contribution that's slightly positive or, or neutral. So there are some economic benefits. Obviously, there are also benefits for UK nationals moving uh, abroad. Some of the potential cons as well for um, for free movement are pressures on public services in some areas, uh, notably schools, housing and maternity wards because of quite high levels of um, birth rates among EU migrants. Some evidence of downward pressures on wages in, in some se sectors, notably the semi-skilled service sector, so things like restaurants, hotels and so on. Um, some of the rules on benefits um, that are quite generous for EU migrants, some have criticised because they're difficult to, to restrict and change. And obviously there's a limit of, on how we can control the kinds of people that come. Because free movement allows anyone from the EU to come to the UK, it's difficult, harder, much harder to control um, the kinds of workers that um, the UK wants to come to, come, uh, to work uh, in the labour market compared to non-EU migrants. Okay, let's, let's finish there for now. Marty, thanks very much for that. Um, just one very simple question. You said that the UK has the second highest inflow of uh, migrants coming in from other EU countries after Germany. Why? Why do so many other EU nationals want to come to the UK? Obviously, the UK has a particularly flexible labour market, um, which has been one of the reasons why people have been sort of found it appealing to come. Um, I think, you know, in particular, there have been large bilateral flows between Poland and the UK. I think that was partly a, a sort of combination of, of, of things sort of happening all at the right time. So um, I think it was, a, it was a moment where lots of Polish workers were unemployed. So there were kind of quite high unemployment rates at that period. Um, and uh, at that point, sort of in 2004, the UK economy was doing quite well. So that was a kind of opportunity for people to come and find work in the UK. Um, obviously, wages and you know, diff diff different different wage rates make a big difference. So the, the UK has much higher wages than sort of Central Eastern European countries. Obviously, the English language was an appeal as well. So people speak English so they can find work. So kind of a mix of different reasons. Also, obviously, the, 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 the um, increase of uh, cheap flights as well, I think, helped people 
able to come come back and forth more easily. So a whole kind of sort of spiral of reasons that have helped um, that made it easier for for EU migrants to to come to the UK and in the UK in particular being being a sort of place where it's seen as seen as a a place of opportunity um, in the in the labour market. Okay, let's see what our jury make of all that. Some questions from you. Who wants to kick off on immigration? Chris. Um, talking about the downward pressure on wages, um, I'm just wondering to what extent this is actually <laughs> anything to do with migration, actually a, more of a domestic issue around employers' practices, and if there's been any work interrogating or investigating employers paying less wages, which they shouldn't because it's against the law. As you say, there are lots of different factors explaining, you know, why wages are stagnating um, in, in, in many different sectors and certainly not just to do with EU migration. As I said before, there was a, a study that tried to link, to try to draw the link between EU migration and, and um, wages and it found a connection, but it only had a small impact on, on, um, on wages in particular sectors, uh, a small negative impact. So um, it's obviously not the full story in terms of explaining why wages are stagnating. Um, and also, as you say, there is, a, there is a point about exploitation of EU migrants in some sectors as well. So if, so if EU migrants are, are not being paid at the minimum wage, and that's obviously illegal and uh, something that the government can, can can do something about. And in fact, it is actually stepping up the Gangmasters Licensing Authority, to, which has powers over this, in order to uh, address this issue and, and, and expand its remit to, to more parts of the economy. Max? If there are, <clears throat> if there are 1.2 million or so Brits abroad, about 3 million uh, EU migrants in Britain, if we vote to leave, we don't leave immediately, but we leave sort of over a process of a couple of years. At the end of that period, is there any reason to suspect or believe that, firstly, Spain and France would no longer want our elderly British population in their country, and some of them might have to come back to, the, to Britain? And also, is there any reason to think we would want to deport EU workers who are currently who already had jobs? Would we not end up with the worst of both situations, where we had an extra million people coming back to Britain? from abroad and we'd have no reason to sort of deport the people here already. Well, so first of all, there's a basic question, which is if the UK votes to leave the EU, it's not totally clear where the free movement rules will go. The free movement might stay. And um, that's a possibility because the UK has a number of options in terms of what kind of tra trade deal it wants with the, with the EU once it votes to leave. So it could, it could decide to stay in what's called the European economic area, like uh, Norway or Iceland or Liechtenstein. And they are members of the European economic area. They're not in the EU, but they're still part of uh, the free movement rules. So they still sign up to all the free movement rules. And they basically have um, the, the same system that, that we have now with free movement. So that wouldn't affect anything. If, on the other hand, we were to not sign up to the, to, to the free movement rules, if we were to find a, a different trade deal that meant that we didn't have free movement uh, with, with the EU uh, for people anymore, um, then what might happen um, is probably, it's probably likely that, that most people living in the in country, in, most people have made use of their free movement rights already. So EU migrants currently in the UK and UK nationals currently in other EU countries would probably be protected. Now, that's 
because it's likely that it's beneficial for both countries to, to in order to come to some kind of deal. I mean, you say that, you know, it would be lopsided. But on the other hand, you have 3 million EU migrants in the UK versus 1.2 million Brits in other EU countries. I mean, it, 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 it seems like it would be beneficial for both sides to, to negotiate some deal that, that secures those rights, or at least secures those rights to stay. Um, what, what, what do you make of the suggestion that in some industries, if the UK were to leave the EU and if EU workers currently in the UK no longer fulfilled entry requirements for non-EU workers, I mean, I'm thinking of hotels and restaurants, for example, where, according to one recent survey, 94% of EU workers in those industries wouldn't fulfill non-EU visa requirements. I mean, that could have potentially a huge economic impact, couldn't it? You're right. For future EU migrants, the if, if the same rules uh, for work were applied to those migrants as were as are now applied to non-EU migrants, it's a, it's quite a high bar, and it means that many of those EU migrants who are uh, in low-skilled work would not uh, would not be able to be sponsored by an employer, so they wouldn't be able to come to the UK. So um, so that means two things. Basically, it means on the one hand that would be quite a significant reduction in EU migration, and secondly, that would obviously have a, a subsequent impact on those sectors that rely quite heavily on EU migrants because of the flexibility, uh, in particular in food processing, in hospitality, and in construction. So those are particular sectors that would be affected. And, and, and it's hard to know what might happen. I mean, it may be that they would need some other form of migrant labor in order to, in order to kind of fill those gaps. They There's might... a lot of talk about a points system, for example, like the Australians use or like the Canadians use, in which the UK would be able to say, these are the kinds of immigrants we want, these are the kinds of immigrants we don't want. If you have enough points, you come in. If you don't, you don't. Yeah. And it's important to note that currently the UK does have a point system for non-EU migrants. So the only the, uh, the main aspect of migration that we don't have a point system for is for EU migrants. So presumably when people talk about a point, Australian-style point system, what they mean is extending the point system we already have to apply to EU migrants. That would have a significant impact probably on EU migration because it would mean that lots of those people who are currently coming for low for low-skilled work wouldn't be able to come anymore. And that in turn would have an impact on those sectors that rely on those migrants. Shana. Just out of interest, if we've got 3 million EU migrants, how many does Germany have and how many are there moving around at any given time? I mean, what is the, the, the net movement of EU nationals? I think the figure for total, for total number of people moving about... I think, if I recall, it's very low. So I think it's around two to three percent of sort of EU nationals who are actually making use of their free movement rights in some shape or form. The, the European Commission has said on a number of occasions that you know it wants to uh, it wants to increase the mobility of 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 EU nationals because it sees it as actually quite low because many people aren't making use of those uh, free movement rights. If the UK voted to leave the EU in the referendum. What impact do you think that is likely to have on the level of immigration into this country? Yeah, so that's a very important question. So what we would likely see is, I think, around of a full of, of around something like 100,000 people. So let's bear in mind that net, net EU migration at the moment 
is around 300,000. So what we, what we would see is perhaps a fall to say something like 200,000. This is very rough, uh, rough figures. We don't know exactly. So I guess there's two things to note there. One is that net EU migration would be a fair bit, uh, net, net migration overall, I should say, would be a fair bit lower. But also it wouldn't be meeting the government's net migration target, which is 100,000 or under 100,000 per year. So you know, what, what, what we would see is, yes, but probably a fall. But if, if the government really wants to bring net migration down to under 100,000 as it's aimed to, what it would have to do is make further changes, make further restrictions to non-EU migration, because non-EU migration is still quite high. It's still, you know, even alone, it's still above the, the government's target. So what it suggests is that it's actually quite hard to control migration levels, really. I mean, it's easy to have rules about who you want to bring in, but it's very hard to actually bring those levels down significantly. We'll leave it there. Marley Morris, thank you very much indeed. Now we come to our second speaker, David Goodhart, who is the founder and former editor of Prospect magazine, now with a think tank policy exchange, and author of a book called The British Dream, Successes and Failures of Post-War Immigration. David Goodhart. Thank you very much. So I think there are two important things one should remember about freedom of movement. It is true that it has been in the sort of sacred texts of the European Union, it's in the Treaty of Rome. Uh, it's been there since 1957, but the two things one should remember. First of all, the definition, um, the legal and other definitions surrounding freedom of movement have changed enormously since 1957. It's been a very evolving uh, concept. Uh, so we now have a much, much more open idea of freedom of movement than we did in throughout much of the 60s, 70s, 80s. You had to have a job already before you came to another country and so on and so forth. Uh, a, a lot of the difference hangs on the invention of this idea of the European citizen in 1982, which effectively means that we have to treat um, citizens from all other European Union countries as if they were British citizens after a few weeks. And second point, it was essentially non-existent until 2004. It involved such trivial numbers of people as to not be noticed by most of our um, populations across Europe. A few tens of thousands of accountants and academics and so on moved. Um, uh, but it was really uh, only with the arrival in the European Union of that group of countries, the Central and Eastern European countries, former communist countries, uh, most of which had average incomes between a quarter and a sixth of the um, average of the rest of the EU, that it became a mass movement. It had never been designed for mass movement. No one had ever really expected a mass movement. Even as late as 2003, the British government, which along with the Swedes and the Irish were the only we were the only three countries that did not place this seven-year restriction on the Central and Eastern Europeans, which is why one of the reasons why we got so many. But right up until 2003, uh, the expectation was very few people would come. A matter of tens of, you know, 15,000 a year was the, was the famous prediction. In fact, about a million and a half people came over the next four years, and it made a major impact on the immigration story in general in the UK and indeed attitudes to the European Union. I mean, I think 
it's fair to say, looking at the sort of cost-benefit analysis for a country like Britain, which has had a disproportionate number of people coming here relative to the number of people that, that live permanently in Europe, it's about 3 million to 1 million. About 3 million EU citizens are resident here and about just over a million Brits are resident in the rest of Europe. Very much m larger numbers of people have come here than, than we go there. Um, that, there's nothing in itself obviously wrong with that. Although it slightly reinforces the economically regressive aspect. Well, I mean, most large-scale immigration tends to be economically regressive in that it tends to benefit better off people and employers uh, than it does people at the bottom of the income spectrum who face more competition in the labour market, more competition um, in, the, in scarce public infrastructure, and who are also possibly more uh, sensitive to, to rapid social change. Uh, they're, they're also much less likely to take advantage of freedom of movement the other way. The people who are most adversely affected are least likely to be able to take advantage of it. The question of European citizenship is, I think, very important to the way in which European Union immigration is perceived. I think there is the sense of a fundamental unfairness in relation to European immigration that perhaps doesn't apply to other forms. Added to which is the whole issue, we can perhaps talk about this later, the whole issue of, of integration. It's, it's one thing when people are coming here, making, you know, they're coming from wherever, Pakistan, uh, Africa, the Caribbean, uh, people are coming here to become British and, and one can sort of think about how to, to make that process of absorbing people into our society easier. With the Europeans, they're not coming here to be British, they're coming here to, you know, they remain Slovakian or Spanish or whatever, they come here for a few years, they may go back, some of course stay longer. Um, final point, I mean, I'm not saying there aren't some benefits in this, uh, filling skill shortages, there are particular areas of the economy, horticulture, agriculture that depend on Romanian and Bulgarian strawberry pickers and so on. Now, I think the, the sort of final point, the cost um, to the European Union as a whole uh, from particularly in big receiving countries like Britain, the cost of the current structure of freedom of movement has been quite high. I mean, I would argue not for abolishing freedom of movement, but for qualifying it in some of the ways that David Cameron was trying to do in his renegotiation, qualify it, um, put back some of the conditions that there used to be. You know, you have to have a job before you come here. I think there are good signs that many other European Union countries, including Germany, the most important country in the European Union, are getting the message on this. There is a movement in Germany to reform the, um, or place the sort of caveats that I've been talking about, the sort of qualifications on European Union citizen access to the social inheritance or, you know, phase it in over a period of time. You know, you, you, you earn it after you've been here for two, three, four, five years, whatever. Let, let's stop there for now, David. I mean, we'll, yeah. we'll obviously fill in some of the gaps with the questions. Let's go to the jury. Chris. Hi. Uh, yeah, thanks for that, David. Um, I, I'm glad you brought up something which Henry spoke about you know, recently. We've been talking about a lot of the economic data, this sort of cultural aspect of migration and you spoke about integration I think that's right there's a lot of a lack of integration which is problematic so I'm just wondering in terms of integration what what do you what do you see as as the sort of solution or a way to which to try and counteract these problems 
So I, I think it is important that wherever people come from, you know, they speak the language, you know, that we share at least certain norms. I mean, I, I, I don't really like the phrase British values either, um, partly because the whole point of a liberal society is that people can have a great variety of values. Nonetheless, the society won't work very well unless you have a, a co you know, areas of common ground and common norms and sort of common understandings of right and wrong. Um, so I think, um, and I think we didn't emphasize that sufficiently in the, you know, in the sort of classical multiculturalism days of the 70s and the 80s. I, I mean, I think there is a, the particular issue with East Europeans, uh, and you get this particularly where there are a lot of them, parts of you know, Northwest London, um, uh, you know, parts of East Anglia or Lincolnshire and so on, um, the sort of feeling that, that, you know, Britain's become a bit of a sort of transit camp. You know, you have people who come here for short periods of time, uh, feel no need to integrate because, they, you know, they don't need they don't need a British passport, they don't need a, uh, to adopt a British identity, they already, they already have one. They're coming here for relatively short periods of time, although that often turns into quite long periods of time. Um, while they're here, they're kind of camped in very separate parts of Boston, Lincolnshire, or whatever, you know, it has a very Polish uh, section of town. Um, and you know, in, in parts of London, I think, you know, the, the long established population feel that they're uh, living in a sort of airport transit lounge. Matt? Yeah, um, we had a referendum in Scotland recently. The SNP or, or the, the outers lost. Um, but in a sense, it's, I feel it's kind of changed Scottish politics, um, certainly for the moment. Do you think there'll be a similar effect in this country after the vote, regardless of who wins? I, do you think there will be a polarisation along different fault lines rather than your usual sort of Tory Labour thing? Yeah, I think that's rather an interesting point. I mean, I think whether we might, in effect, have something similar to the post-Scottish referendum outcome, that although we will perhaps narrowly vote to stay in, that somehow the Brexit side of the argument will have gained momentum, will have seemed to have won the argument in some ways. I think actually that would not be a bad outcome at all. In fact, it was an outcome I would rather support. Staying in so we avoid, you know, the, the, the economic risks and the kind of, you know, Putin geopolitical risks. But, the, you know, there will be momentum there. It will have effect in other European Union countries. I mean, I think, you know, what, what has happened in the European Union is a particular case of a more general issue, which is the kind of overreach of modern liberalism. Modern liberalism has got too big for its boots. Um, it, has, it has moved to undermine the nation state and national sovereignty too fast. Um, you know, people are waking up to the fact that um, their, their political classes, who are often over-dominated, I think, by, um, by a, a form of post-national liberalism, um, uh, and, and there's an adjustment underway. I think we'll leave it there. David Goodhart, thank you very much indeed. Right, so let's see what we made of all that. Over to you, members of the jury. Uh, light bulb moments, anybody? Max. Sounds as if, especially on what uh, the first speaker was saying, we could leave, but migration would still be fairly high, partly because of non-EU migration and partly because of EU migration. Does that surprise you? A little bit, yeah, and it, it makes me think a, a bit that the people who want to leave 
it doesn't seem likely that it would change much either way. So I feel sorry for people who are campaigning strongly to leave under the impression that we'll seal borders or take back control or whatever the phrase being used is. It seems a bit disingenuous. Amy. Yeah, okay. I have a slightly different perspective, as you all know. I'm originally from America. But but I challenge everyone to to just get in a taxi. And all these people, they're not going to be from the EU. They're going to be outside. They love this country. They absolutely adore this country because of the ease in which, which they were actually to create a life here. That doesn't mean that they don't live in an area which is, you know, predominantly people who speak their own language, but they love this country for that reason. So I don't really understand what the second speaker was talking about. People want more Britishness. I mean, I, I think Britons should be really proud of the, the situation they've created as opposed to a place like France, which likes to exclude English words like genes from their from their language. It's, it's crazy, you know. I, I, I don't really understand what he was saying. Madeleine, I know immigration was something that worried you a lot. Um, are you more worried or less worried having heard those two? Oh, you know, I, I'm, I would gear slightly to, to leaving, but having, you know, heard the last two speakers, you know, I'm a bit more flippy floppy. Why? What, what did they say that, that no, led you to that? The immigration thing, what Max was saying, yeah, my main fear is that, you know, we're going to get over, overflown or overthrown with immigrants, but you know, having heard the two guys speak and you know the question Max raised, I, yeah. So I think you know my view from yesterday to today has changed with those two speakers and the questions that the rest of the panel have asked. What about you, Nigel? Um, I'd have to say that um, I still feel that we are a bit um, overwhelmed. Um, I know that sounds maybe a little bit unfair, but although you were saying they love this country, I don't disagree with that, but they don't really integrate. So you do find yourself sometimes in a situation where maybe you are the minority. And that is a little bit intimidating for me, I have to say. When, when is that? Give me an example. When has that happened? Um, well, I took my daughter um, to an area in London about two years ago and she was wearing shorts. And she, at the time she was about 17. And um, the whole area is, a, is mainly a Muslim area. And the looks that she got for wearing these. And I was very uncomfortable with that. In fact, I wanted to chat. What, what, are you do, what do you think you're doing? Staring. And it wasn't nice. It, but what's interesting, of course, is that that actually doesn't directly have anything to do with whether we're members of the EU or not, does it? Because the people you're talking about, they probably were born here, but their family origins would have been outside Europe. Yeah, that's probably true. But um, in other cases, you do find yourself on the train and everyone else around you is, is maybe from someone else, somewhere else. And again, that is a bit uncomfortable too. You, you do like, you don't like to feel that you're, you've suddenly become a minority. I'm sorry that that, that is how I feel about it. Sharma? Um, oh, uh, <laughs> well, uh, it didn't change my views on immigration because I don't, 
feel I didn't have a strong opinion about how immigration affected our membership of the EU or um, though I find what's being said interesting because I agree with Amy that it's fantastic that everybody loves Britain and I also agree with Nadia I mean certainly as a person of colour the only person of colour on this jury I have felt such racism from the East Europeans <laughs> who come in and don't serve me in coffee bars and uh, which I've never felt off any Brit uh, but that isn't what I take off away from this session, what I actually take away is Matt's question uh, and David Goodhart's response to it, because I thought that was so interesting. He, I, it was like, a, that was my light bulb moment, was that Brexit is taking us into a new type of politics because it will polarize us and it might actually finally galvanize us uh, into being that sort of political nation we used to be in the uh, 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, and I'm so excited by that thought. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad. Just for that thought alone, I'm so glad I've been here. And that's made you more likely at the moment, the way you feel, to vote to leave? Um, no, it hasn't made me feel particularly strongly about either. Uh, what I think I know is even if I voted to leave, all that would do would be help polarise the thinking, because as uh, David Goodhart said, we're obviously going to end up staying in. Um, Why would you say that? Because I think the majority of people ultimately will opt for what they know. Uh, they feel safe. They feel uh, they don't remember how they felt before. And many of the people here weren't even born before. So if you feel safe and you think you're in a good place, why on earth would you vote to take a risk? But then there's probably an older generation which, say, which says, we used to be Great Britain. We used to be innovators. We used to do things that nobody else had done. We used to be explorers. We used to, you know, bust a gut here and there. Why don't we just try and do that again? And just To which the Remainers say, yeah, but the world's changed. Precisely. So, you know, I... I'm still not sure which way I'm jumping. Denise, did you have a moment when one of the speakers said something you thought, huh, that changes how I think? Um, I, I, I feel more optimistic that if we stay in Europe, we possibly would have more negotiation because other countries are having the same discussions. And that was, that was very interesting with David. I, th I think there is an issue here, and I think the issue is when you talk about immigration, I think the issue is who are you talking about? And then I get onto rocky territory here because... Go there. Well, my, my rocky territory is the race issue, and the race issue is a lot of people from Eastern Europe are white. We might not, <laughs> you know, we might have been inundated, but here are people who are working. And in many ways, because they're white, we don't notice them as much. So we're now talking about culture. And then we have a group of people. Well, except Nadia says she notices them because, you know, if you, if you go on the bus, you hear lots of people speaking a language other than English. But, but not in the way. And I'm sympathetic with what you say, Nadia. I'm not, I'm not making a judgment on this. I'm just bringing it up. Is that I think the big issue here is fear of change of culture and and we are very, very nervous and we're very scared about that. But the change of culture is generally coming from people outside the EU. I don't see a massive change of culture from people in the EU who actually, in my experience, and I live in North London with a lot of Turkish people, a lot of uh, people from Eastern Europe, um, 
they generally do integrate in my experience, but then who are we talking about when we talk about immigration? Um, I mean, it's quite simple for me, just just give my two pence. Uh, I don't have a problem with anyone wanting to better themselves. And if that means them coming here, so be it. Change of culture doesn't bother you? I think we benefit from a change of culture. It's nice to have a bit of balance, a bit of reflection on how we are as a society, how we could be better, learning from other people. I, re I am actually quite sympathetic to Nadia's point of view. It's not something I recognise personally. I work at a, a business school. We have such a diverse uh, uh, range of cultures and countries and stuff. And we, I learn from that. It depends on where you sit on the ladder, because, for instance, I work in a hotel. OK, previously I was in banking and then I had my four children. So this is really just a part time job, basically, at the end of the road. My husband's the main breadwinner. But the point is, it's minimum wage. It's very, very hard work, believe it or not. Uh, we're understaffed and a lot of the people aren't as lucky. They don't own their own house. And on those salaries, they are not going to own their own house and they don't they struggle to even rent so when they're saying that um uh it does it affect you know the migration from europe if you can congregate in one house and i'm not saying that in a negative way because obviously they're trying to to earn a living but if it makes sense to all share a house rather like students and you can then go for the the, the lower wages because you you're st you've still got a large percentage of, of your wages you you share one water rate one council tax and so on then you're better off and now i don't like the argument that when they say the british person refuses to take those jobs it isn't a case of they, they choose not to take those jobs. They actually cannot afford to take those jobs because the pay isn't, isn't enough. And then, so when they can tap into these other markets, you do keep the, the wages down. I'm sorry, as far as I'm concerned, that's exactly how it is. Yeah, so that, that's a domestic, pro domestic government problem, not a problem of EU migration, yes, right? Well, when we can use, when we can bring them into the country, nobody has to look at those issues. You don't have to tackle yeah, them at all. We absolutely should look at those issues. That guy said the gang mass gang masters licensing authority has actually increased its coverage or investigation to those things. So I think pressure should actually be put on the government more to interrogate bad employer practice, low wages, rather than scapegoating people who are just trying to make a better life for themselves. I do agree with that, of course. Uh, I do agree people need to come to make a better life. Everyone would, given the opportunity, go somewhere where they know their life will improve. I don't disagree with that. I'm just saying that the, the, the effects on Britain at the moment for the normal person on the street is not very good. Let's just try and kind of pull this all together then. How important do you feel this whole immigration issue is when you come to decide how you're going to vote in the referendum? Yeah, it's fairly important. I think um, one of the characteristics of a country is um, to be able to control its borders. And at present, we can't do that. Therefore, we can't plan uh, public expenditure. We've no idea how many hospitals, schools, etc., to build, how many old people's homes. Um, and also those who come in immediately take advantage of our um, national insurance systems, etc., not having paid in to them before. So 
The figures suggest that they contribute more than they take out. Um, okay, you're looking at... Just in terms of income tax. That may be so, uh, from an economic point of view. But, but there's a whole cultural thing as well, you know. I mean, you know, the gross numbers of people coming in, it dilutes the, the, uh, the host culture and the people who make up those hosts, hosts have had no say in that. Immigration isn't top of my list by any means, and listening to the speakers, I don't think leaving will change the situation a huge amount anyway, so it's not top of my list. No, I think it would be interesting if the people that wanted to leave were actually, and they talk about immigration, which is an incredibly emotive subject, if they were actually talking, if they actually cared about working-class people in Britain, but they're much more jingoistic than that. They don't really, that's the real issue for me, and they don't even touch on it. Uh, well, I don't feel any great uh, change in the way I'm thinking because of our immigration conversations, but I am constantly upset when we have immigration uh, conversations around immigration about a kind of reverse uh, racism against those Brits who are at the bottom of the pile. Uh, as if somehow a good immigrant is better than a Brit who's at the bottom of the pile. They're both people needing to work, and we should be working on both of them. Yeah, I think immigration is an issue that I feel very strongly about. But I think listening to everybody here today, and including the speakers, it's changed my mind, and it might not be top of my list anymore. Immigration especially is a hugely emotive subject that will drive a lot of people who feel strongly about it to vote out. I don't necessarily think that the information is being presented in a very fair way, and I don't think that's a very good reason to vote out, but I think it will affect people more maybe than it will affect people on this panel. Well, thank you all very much indeed for that. Uh, there are three more discussions available in this series about the EU's impact on our economy, on our laws and regulations, and on our identity and sovereignty. You can find them all on our website at eutheJury.uk. I do hope you'll find them useful. I'm Robin Lustig. Thank you for listening.